Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and you're about to watch a conversation from Courageous Conversations 2021. However, before we get into that, I want to cordially invite you to Courageous Conversations 2022. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Well, you're sure to enjoy our next and final panel, Patriarchy in the Church. This panel is important for many reasons, and I believe it is important as we go on our quest and journey to reclaim Christianity. We have to deal with this issue of patriarchy and how it's affected the church. We have four amazing panelists to help lead this conversation. Dr. Cheryl Sanders, Dr. Otis Moss III, Dr. C.J. Rhodes, and Dr. Sarita Lyons. This conversation will be moderated by Yana Connor. Enjoy. Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> we had a, uh, we, we lost the mic, um, so we're, we're, Yes, Dr. Dr. Moss is just gonna hang out for a bit. Um, man, this has been such a rich time, yeah? Um, such a rich time. Um, and I even feel like we had a little bit of a holy moment <laughs> in our last session. And so just really thankful to these panelists and these scholars and just the work that they do. And so thankful that we get to round the conference out, having a conversation about patriarchy in the church. And so, I think before we even jump into the conversation, it's probably gonna be really helpful if we provide a definition for patriarchy. And so starting with you, uh, Dr. Saunders, uh, how would you define the patriarchy? The simplest definition I can give of patriarchy is the hierarchy of male dominance and female subordination. That's a, a very general uh, definition but it's based on the idea of the superiority of the male and the inferiority, or at least the subordination of the female. And the key mechanisms and structures that accompany that thinking um, are based on uh, particular ways of male bonding. Um, the colloquialism is the old boy network but there's all kinds of old boy networks. Some of them are visible and some of them are hidden, but they all exclude females or 
require an assimilation of their values in order for females to participate. So that's a kind of a sociological definition, but I know we're gonna spend a lot of time seeing how that plays out in the church. Yes, ma'am, we are. Dr. Rose, how about you? Yes, I would agree with Dr. Sanders uh, in terms of the definition, and it does come primarily out of the social scientific uh, studies, sociology, anthropology, as people look at various orderings of societies around the world, and that socio-scientific definition has found itself a lot in our theological uh, conversations about well, how do we then see those arrangements between men and women, the hierarchies, if you will, in churches, seminaries, in Christian community. Uh, and so um, I would say that I would also add the addendum uh, that in certain societies, there would be an argument about whether or not that relationship is inherently wrong, evil, unjust, or not. And if you study various civilizations in Africa, Asia, et cetera, it seems a lot of those spaces uh, have, have some sort of patriarchal arrangement. Uh, and the ethical question for us in the church in particular is, is that arrangement right or wrong? Is it gospel-centered or not? And I think that is part of the conversation today. Yeah, yeah, we look, I look forward to getting to that question, um, yeah. How are you, Dr. Lyons? I'm well, thank you, how are you? Good, good. How would you define patriarchy? Uh, so I definitely agree that um, the definitions that have been shared are accurate, especially for the lived times we are in and how people are experiencing uh, male superiority and domination. But I do think, especially as the people of God who talk about the patriarchs of our faith, that we consider an alternate or um, an agreeable term around a patriarchy that doesn't necessarily have an inherently negative connotation. Um, as we've come to understand, it's like in this society, if you hear the word patriarchy, it's triggering. It's, it is a loaded word. But I mean, I just wanna read this definition too, a system of society or government in which the father or eldest male is head of the family and descendant is traced through the male line, right? And so when we think about even just in the Old Testament um, around systems or the, the reality of patriarchy, um, the family, the early Jewish family was both patrilineal, which meant that the, the lineage or the descendant line was traced to the eldest male or the father. I would say it was also patrilocal which meant when a son married, the wife would then come and live in the father's home. So her location was with the father in his house. And then it was also patriarchal in the sense that the father was the leader or rule. And I've done some, a little bit of reading and I really like what one writer uh, kind of recommends as a way of not throwing away or dismissing the idea of patriarchy um, scripturally, but also saying a better way to understand the early church is that it was patriocentric, which meant the father was kind of like the, the head spoke in the wheel and things revolved around the father, but not just in his rulership. I think when we think about patriarchy because of the connotations of the society we live in, we think of dominance and rule, but more than just he was patri it was patriarchal because of his rulership, but more of his responsibility. 
And I think one of the things we don't often talk about is especially in the Old Testament, um, the patriarch, had the, the scripture talks less about the authority of a man and more about the responsibility of a man. And so that the father was responsible for the care, the protection, the provision, right, of the family. And so I just kind of wanted to add that as well because unfortunately we live in a world where we're often influenced by outsiders. And by what I mean by that is people outside of the Christian faith helping us to, to uh, define and wrestle with the issues of the church. And so for instance, if the feminist movement is helping us define how we ought to understand patriarchy, it will have always only a negative connotation. And I think we just have to be careful about that. Why we hold both truths constant. Is there a thematic uh, disposition of hierarchy, male headship, male leadership that is not supposed to be abusive and a dictatorship um, and cause harm while at the same time holding the other truth con um, constant that we live in a world where male, male headship and dictatorship and abuse of women also exist. Oh, that's so helpful, that's so helpful. Got a mic, praise God. Is this on? Yeah, yeah I, how I, would you I, define I, it? Sure, sure, I, I, I agree with the, the definitions that have been made Dr. Saunders who's laid it out sociologically. I would just add to the fact that within the American context, within our context, when you add race and class to this idea uh, of patriarchy also, it is the limiting of the human imagination to fully see the full capacity of all human beings, specifically sisters in terms of how God has endowed them to be able to flourish. So patriarchy in the American context does not allow human beings to flourish, specifically sisters to flourish because they have been erased or made invisible or diminished by particular definitions and powers within our society. Yeah, that's so helpful. I'm glad they got you that, Mike. Um, so here's so Dr. Lyons, you were talking about patriarchy in the Bible and how it's 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 mostly like around family, the the conversation around like father uh, headship of the home and things like that, but. It, it hasn't just stayed there, like it's, it's moved out into society and, kings, yeah. Yeah, and even into the church. And so how have you all seen patriarchy play out in the church? In the church? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, since we're using uh, sociological and to some extent anthropological language, um, let's talk about the alpha male. That's the, 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 the male in the animal kingdom, the alpha male is the one that can whoop all the rest up, okay? But we have an alpha male mentality in some of our churches, and it's manifested by, and it's, it's not a problem that the pastor or the leader is male. It's the style of leadership and the expectations that even the female members will bring to how he's going to exercise that authority and how people buy into it. Um, alpha male, though, gets to be comical when it's, it's always a fight for prominence and dominance among any male. So we, in, in the black church, for instance, there's no wonder that we, the women outnumber the men because a lot of men are not gonna put up with that alpha male stuff. Whereas women are, comfortable with it, okay? But the, the, the 
main manifestation of patriarchy in the church is the dominance of men in leadership and the exclusion of women from leadership. And if women are leaders, they're subjected to scrutiny and expectations that no man would ever be expected to live up to. And so to me, the ideal in the church is the, the alternative to patriarchy is some notion of partnership um, or parity or equity. I, I, I think that Martin Luther King helped us understand that all people are equal. I, I think that's what the civil rights movement was about. So we shouldn't have to be revisiting whether men and women are equal. But there are many, we, we have these nuances of expectation. Well, the men have to be up front. The men have to be prominent. The men have to be dominant. And I would say in the church, even our architecture, sometimes the way the chairs, I'm, I'm not talking about this church, but the chairs are, 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 are and the pulpits are erected in such a way that it, it sort of um, lends itself to a projection of the male, uh, whereas a, a woman wouldn't quite fit into the, even the architecture. And so there are many ways that, what I'm suggesting, that patriarchy is embedded into the way we do church and we don't even think about it. So it's great that we're having this conversation because I'm looking forward to our ability to sort of bring to light some of the assumptions and some of the ideas that govern the relationship between the sexes in the church that um, are not enabling and empowering for all of us. I would um, continue with that sociological piece in terms of a read of some black churches, not all black churches are equal in terms of how they interpret all these matters. Um, but we've been talking a lot about white supremacy. And I think it, in a negative sense, white supremacy's impact on black men get sort of inverted in the, in the black church in some spaces where the black men then assert not only responsibility, but a kind of dictatorship because they have been excluded from other forms of leadership in the broader community. Um, and as such, you see the alpha male stuff, you see the jockeying for power, et cetera, and that any woman's giftedness or leadership is a threat to that territorialism, right? Um, and so this shows up in sort of soft ways and, and more explicit ways. I had a conversation with a holiness bishop friend of mine before coming uh, to the conference, and he was wrestling with his desire to teach his sons baseball but neither of his sons want to play. He bought them all the equipment, baseball, bat, mitt, took them out to the games. They just were disinterested. Mind you, his daughter came and said, I want to play softball. And he kept rebuffing her and dismissing her, saying, no, 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 no. I'm trying to get these boys to play baseball. And it dawned on him, like, wait a minute, first, why am I sort of holding her back from something she's passionate about because it doesn't fit some gendered expectation I have of my sons and my daughters? And then he said, how have we done that in the church? Where in a variety of ways we've ignored, rendered invisible women's giftedness because we want to just, you know, the boys to play ball. So I think that's sort of one way that, that one particular uh, pastor's working through it. Another case at another conference I won't name here on the more progressive side, um, because we often think this is just the conservatives have the, the gender issue wrong. Well, I was at 
this conference some years ago, uh, Dr. Moss may remember this, may not. Uh, um, the, the men were very passionate about prophetic ministry, about calling out political injustice and all of that. And then after they got through their preachments, sexually objectified the other sisters there who were there as seminarians and preachers and would-be theologians, right? And so the way that abuse of patriarchy showed up in that sense is that they could only see those women as objects for their sexual gratification, not co-equal partners and conversation partners. And, uh, and, and, and to, to Dr. Moss's credit, I mean, he came and made sure he gave a word of encouragement to everybody. Um, so I say that one because I do want to make sure that we don't leave the conversation assuming that the abuses of dictatorial alpha male leadership is just in evangelical, conservative, holiness, missionary Baptist churches. It can even show up in spaces where folks say they are justice-loving, uh, women-affirming, and yet still have this sense uh, that, that women's sexual objectification is a part of the gift we receive as being men of God. Well, I, I would love to go back to something that you said earlier, Dr. Saunders. You talked about how there are places where we see, well, where the patriarchy, like the ideals of that are at play, right? But that we're very unaware um, that they're even happening. And so I would love to kind of hear what are some examples of some of the spaces that you all have been in where you maybe didn't notice, you know, at first glance that patriarchy the ideals were at play in the church, but later realized like, oh, there's this kind of a power dynamic there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that any uh, system of, you know, unbiblical, unrighteous leadership and expression of maleness, right, that would be counterintuitive to the gospel and the picture that Jesus demonstrated before all of us in terms of being the perfect man. Um, Usually you see things like um, abuse of power, right? So I would either say in those cases, men are either abusive, abdicating, and arrogant. So you would find something falling under those categories. And I, you often see it just in terms of thinking of women or creating a narrative where women are inferior. And so when you think of a woman as inferior, you're diminishing her value and worth, which actually then becomes an attack on the Imago Dei. So God has declared both man and woman equal image bearers, and to see women as inferior or less than would actually be to be, have enmity with God, right? Because that's what he's already declared. I think we also see it in terms of insensitivity. Uh, one of the big problems I think we have around uh, male-female relationships and the power dynamics we see in the church is oftentimes there's too small of a view of women and womanhood, meaning women and women's issues, that's a global phenomenon. And if you only think about the women in your home, if you only think about the daughters you raised, the wife you married, the mother you have, you're missing a plethora of experiences that women have globally, number one, of oppression and injustice. So there's an insensitivity to it. And I think also when women cry out in our local congregations, even if it comes across as protest or a gentle reproof or outright anger, there often isn't people with enough emotional 
uh, stability and or uh, sensitivity to truly stop and listen. And so we often talk about believing and listening to victims of rape and violence, right? Like that's just how you're supposed to enter into a lived experience with an open heart, a listening ear and belief. And many times when women cry out against the church and structures in society where they've been experiencing misogyny and sexism, those are often kind of like poo-pooed and not taken seriously mostly because it requires a person to have a confrontation with themselves. Because as we've discussed about the Good Old Boys Network and things like that, the reality is the way we talk about racism, when we talk about you have a certain privilege in your whiteness, men also move and walk throughout the world with male privilege. And part of how we begin to deconstruct and dismantle that, and I know we'll talk about that later, is is really hinged on how much men are willing to divest from male privilege so that they can also be a part of ending the systems of oppression that are coming against women that they are actually participating in or at least protected from and protected by. And so some of the ways we see it, you know, obviously invisibility is a big one. And this is where, uh, you know, so not honoring, respecting, and or providing and equipping people in their gifts and callings. Because I do think that there are often times when people will kind of lay hands in the sense of say, I know she's gifted, you know, teacher. I know that she's a gifted administrator. I know that she's a strategist. I know that she can lead. But then the discipleship and the training and the resources won't go to building up the woman in the way that often men are built up and equipped to be unleashed. So there are a lot of women that might not ever go to seminary who still need discipleship, who still need leadership training, who need access to books and resources and logos and all those other materials. And then I would say as a woman, and I'll pass the mic after this because I got a list, right? <laughs> but um, I would say one of the things I also notice um, is this thought or this mindset that women are not theolo theologically savvy or interested. And so, you know, as a leader of women's ministry, oftentimes in churches you have men's ministry and women's ministry, and I believe there's an, a, a biblical apologetic for both, meaning we need both. Um, because there are things that happen in women's ministry you can't talk about on Sunday. Um, and so it's a, it's a great and necessary space for women to gather. But if a lead pastor is okay with men's ministry learning doctrine and women sewing you know, potholders and making reefs for doors for Christmas and they are not making sure that there is depth of theological acumen happening in women's ministry, that is also a form of how toxic masculinity or patriarchy is at work. And what happens is women get preached to their emotions and not their mind. Patriarchy touches every aspect of our culture and in our lives, uh, along with forms of toxic masculinity and, and misogyny. L let me share the story. I, I had the opportunity, uh, I was at Hampton uh, Ministers Conference, and there was a person who had been called to ministry, but um, because uh, this individual had been told women uh, cannot be pastors, uh, then therefore you cannot go to seminary. This woman was Dorothy Height. She gave a, a statement saying that I was called at 19 years old 
I was told by my pastor, women cannot be pastors and cannot do ministry. But she said, I talked to God. And God said, form your own church, which became the Council of Negro Women. Uh, she had to circumvent this form of patriarchy because it touches every aspect of, of who we are. And one of the things that I think that the church needs to do a better job of is that we have to pair, especially men, uh, with mentors and teachers who can help them identify their privilege and understand how they move through the world can be damaging to their own community through this idea of patriarchy. So for, for, for example, when a woman preaches, there will be comments that will be made to the sister that a brother would never experience. Until a brother becomes sensitive enough to understand uh, the challenges, we cannot truly be partners because we will continue to make uh, the pain and the microaggressions invisible. And so we have to be paired with people who can assist us to understand that you're walking with privilege and you also have to be a partner in deconstructing what is destructive to the human personality because the church in America still functions out of empire. We are influenced by a Constantinian framework where we want to control, to dominate, to show how powerful we are. That's why when you get a whole bunch of preachers together, they start talking about how big the numbers are of their church. They lie in any way. You just cut it in half if you really want to find out how big the church is anyway. And it's just all kind of mess um, because they have never had uh, the kind of deconstruction in terms of understanding the space and the privilege uh, that they walk through that is damaging. Uh, so many men become a bull in a china shop, literally injuring people and leaving shards of glass where members are cut consistently because they don't understand that their privilege is damaging. Might I add, um, this is I think complementary to the conversation about patriarchy, but I think a lot of what we talked about is perceived by a lot of men as limited to the pulpit. That, that men are powerful in the pulpit, but may not be as powerful in the congregation. Um, and I think that also ties into the previous conversation about BRICS and uh, some of the stuff we're seeing with Hebrew Israelism, et cetera, where there's this sort of um, appeal to angry black men. Uh, there's been an ongoing conversation where there's the assumption that the black church is feminized, matriarchal, and does not make room for uh, black men unless they're called to ministry, which is why you, in some cases, have a bunch of folks who weren't called by God, uh, but get into pulpit ministry because they find that's the best way to attain privilege. Um, and so and I, re I bring that up because you think about these sort of contemporary debates now, like your camp, uh, Kevin Samuels, all these kind of folks. There's this debate within the black community about how much privilege do black men have, how much privilege do black women have. I don't think we've had that courageous conversation in the church to, you know, we, we've talked at each other but not with each other about the ways in which white supremacy has traumatized both black men and black women. And in many cases, uh, black men have unconsciously perpetrated um, 
abuse and negligence toward black women because they have a kind of a passive aggressive approach to the real enemy, right? White man's kicking them and putting them down. And so they gotta take that anger out some other place. Um, and so I think what you're seeing particularly in uh, some of these, these movements is a reassertion of some kind of masculinity, which I think ultimately is toxic. Um, but I think we have to deal with the fact that those brothers do in many ways think they have no privilege in the black church because they read the black church as primarily matriarchal because most of the ministries are around women and their children. Um, and so that then, then reinforces the toxic masculinity in the pulpit because it's the last place I can truly assert my manhood, right? And so I remember hearing conversations recently of older black men who say, my issue with women in ministry isn't necessarily biblical or theological, it's that the pulpit is the only and last place I can be somebody. And if they come in, they're gonna take this last place too. And I find it a strange argument, but it is, I mean, it's there. It's in the psyche. And I think that has to be dealt with uh, as well. Can I say something to you? Um, you know, uh, some of you may know, but my um, doctorate degree is in psychology. So I do often approach things too, or can't help but approach things from kind of a counseling perspective and thinking about souls and minds and how we think and how we make meaning of things and construct ideas. Um, and so I think one of the hardest parts about having a conversation like this is, you know, you'd have to live up under a rock on another planet to think that there aren't, you know, power structures. You know, we would even, from a spiritual perspective, think of them as strongholds, right? And demonic systems of oppression that are impacting our churches and congregations. And incidentally, you know, trying to do what happened in the garden originally, which was to dismantle and disrupt God's ordained relationship between man and woman. Because the moment the fall hit, now they're hiding from each other, they're blaming each other, they're pointing the finger, and disunity between both men and women uh, began. And so in the same vein that we talk about racial reconciliation and a, a legitimate path toward that, what would that look like? I think we also need to think through um, what gender reconciliation would look like and own that we need gender reconciliation and that people are hurt and people have been hurt in the crossfires of it. Um, and so with all reconciliation, it starts with honesty and it starts with repentance, right? Um, hearing the other. Um, and so as a woman, of course, I've definitely dealt with my own fair share of oppression and discrimination. I work with women, I, I'm a champion of women. But I would be remiss as someone who is a Christian and someone who is called to um, minister and teach and preach the scriptures. I would be remiss though if I left this conversation without saying we do have to fight this and go to the word of God. And I think that um, it would be a disservice if we looked at all men, let's just take a church where there is a male leadership, there's, there's male eldership. And because a lot of this comes down to a hermeneutic issue when you talk about the pulpit too. How do you interpret the scripture when it comes to women in leadership, pastoring, preaching, all those kind of things. It's the interpretive lens 
that we're looking through. And we have to be able to hold both truths constant, that we might be having different theological leanings and interpretations, but that doesn't mean if you're on one side or the other, and I, you know, and I wanna speak, as much as I'm speaking for women, I wanna speak for pastors too, in the sense that just because a pastor is calling what he's doing being faithful to the text, right? That doesn't mean that he is anti-woman. That doesn't necessarily mean that he is a misogynist. That doesn't necessarily mean he is a sexist. And until we're able to do that, we will continue to draw these made up lines of egalitarian and complementarian. And what we have to realize that, that we're grappling with is that everything that we're seeing play out in the church may not be sexism, but it could also be for that congregation or for that leadership, faithfulness to the text where we see male headship at work. And at the end of the day, everybody can throw popcorn and be angry about it, but where we often see the lines drawn, which I think we do a disservice when we limit the conversation about patriarchy and sexism and misogyny to just who has a right to the pulpit or who has a right to the pastorate, is one, we overlook all the other women who are suffering who the issue for them isn't even about whether or not they can pastor. Because women are suffering in the world and in the church at the hands of men and toxic masculinity, and it has nothing to do with a pastorate issue. But if we only fight about that, right, we miss addressing all the other ways God is calling the church to pursue justice. And the same energy that we fight against racism, how do we also fight against sexism and misogyny? But I think it would be just not fair to only draw the lines between, if you interpret the scripture to mean a woman can pastor, you're inherently sexist and misogynist. I don't think that is accurate. And I also don't think that just because you come from a more egalitarian stance and you may agree with women preaching and pastoring, that that means you don't have the capability to be a sexist and misogynist because they are out there on both sides. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. I appreciate you uh, taking us to the word um, and directing our attention there. And so I want to ask this question, like, does the Bible affirm patriarchy as God's ideal for society? The Bible. <laughs> um, I think this conversation challenges us to reread, to reconsider, and to examine our sources of hermeneutics and interpretation. And I'm, I'm a theological educator. And so we take very seriously when we're educating theological students, you need to take your courses in, in old Hebrew Bible and, and New Testament, et cetera. But one of the resources that we use in the seminary, in the churches and elsewhere are commentaries, right? But we have to ask ourselves the question, who wrote the commentary? And so, if a white man wrote the commentary, he's going to bring a white man's view to the Bible, okay? Now, that doesn't say it's wrong, but you, you, you can't just go to the commentary and say, well, commentary says this, and this is how we interpret this scripture. We, we have to bring our own intersectionality to the reading of God's word, okay? And so you can take one scripture, women shouldn't teach men, and silence all the other women in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Or you can say, hmm, 
Now, when those women discovered the empty tomb, the Bible says they went and they told the men exactly what the angel told them to say, and the men said, no, we ain't, we ain't believing it. Okay? So you have right there in the central narrative to our Christian faith the dismissal of the credibility of women who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what happens? Well, we have Doubting Thomas. And so finally, Jesus just had to show up himself. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm not making up stuff that's not in the book. But we skip the scriptures that inform the problem. And so I'm saying, let's reread. Let's say, hmm, wonder why they wouldn't listen to those women. You say, well, Mary Magdalene, look at, and, and then that's the other thing we do. We make all kinds of assumptions about the women we read about in the Bible. Oh, well, she was this kind of woman. She was that kind of woman. Oh, women couldn't. I, I learned this in Sunday school. Well, you know, women couldn't read in the Bible. They didn't, you know, women didn't go to school. Women couldn't read. Women didn't know. And I was like, hmm, wonder where that came from. Somebody's commentary <laughs> that the Sunday school, uh, the people that write the Sunday school literature make. They, so we, all I'm saying is we need to reexamine some of the negative assumptions that we have even brought to the scriptures and let the women in the scriptures speak to us. Let the men speak to us. We have a problem with Paul, right? But Paul talked about his partners. If you read Romans chapter 16, just the, the end of the letter, right? You, you skip over that. Well, greet this one, greet that one, greet this one. Well, who are you greeting? Greet my partners in ministry. Who are they? Aquila and Priscilla. And so you can say, oh, well, Paul didn't think. No, he said, these are my partners in ministry. These are the people who are laying their lives on the line for this gospel. And it's men and women working together. And so to me, at least we ought to get from that a model of the kind of mentoring, the quality of mentoring that we need. If you're a leader, I don't care if you're male or female, you ought to have in your, um, your lineup of mentors ought to be inclusive of different kinds of people and not just the kind of people that you're trying to become. And so we need to do more mentoring. We need to do more just teaching people how to do friendship. You talked about reconciliation. One of the practices of reconciliation is, do we really know how to befriend each other? I'm not talking about the pulpit. I'm not talking about people in, just to, how do we just conduct a relationship? We, there are a lot of people who don't, they don't know a positive, they haven't been exposed to that. It's not a point of reference. So we need to work hard in the church. It's not a matter of putting down men are putting down fathers we need to identify well you know this here's a family here's a brother who's getting it right and so that our children know that they have role models that may not be present for them in their home or in their community but they're in the church people that they not only can look up to but people who will take an interest in them and pour into them because we yes we want to educate people about dismantling the structures that need to be dismantled, but we also want people to be educated about how to empower themselves to be all that God has gifted and called them to be. Um, 
Yeah, I think Dr. Saunders bringing up the uh, hermeneutical piece is important. And Dr. Lyons talked about these terms we throw around quite a bit, egalitarian, complementarian. Um, and I agree with what she said. I, I would also add that I think it is important, particularly in spaces like this, for us to affirm that a more egalitarian reading of scripture could also be based on the belief that the scripture is sufficient and trustworthy and authoritative. Mm -hmm. And that an egalitarian reading, hermeneutic, isn't necessarily someone throwing away the authority of scripture in, in, in choosing some secular uh, ideology. Uh, that said, I think you know one way of looking at scripture is that it is descriptively patriarchal. This is written in uh, times and places and among people uh, that clearly affirm patriarchy. We could even have a debate about God's endorsement of that or not. Um, but I think uh, Dr. Robertson in a previous panel uh, used another term in, in the scholarship, heter uh, heterarchy, that you see these moments where, yes, there seems to be male rulership, but then there are these, these subversive moments mm. that keep popping up. And I think, I think the hermeneutical piece is that we haven't, we haven't often, particularly men, have not often read in ways that uh, visualize the women in, in the narrative. Um, I take, for instance, Genesis 1, contrasting that to Genesis 3, there is a parody in Genesis 1. They are to rule together. Genesis 3, the curse, the man will rule over. I personally right, uh, see the notion that men are over women as a result of the fall. And yet there's this constant struggle through, from Genesis 3 through the end of the book um, of where you see women uh, in a subversive way, showing up in and and leader, and not just Deborah. There are all these other, you know, you know, um, you know. We see Miriam. We see we see Hagar. We we see Philip's four prophesying daughters. Uh, you know, we see the radicality of God being made flesh in the womb of Mary. Uh, we see the women at the tomb. I mean, even that is itself subversive because, and 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 I may get this wrong. Of course, you're the theological scholar. Uh, but the testimony of women was not always trusted in those days. So, so we have to ask ourselves, why would God allow the most important message about the gospel be presented? Or even let's be, Before you even get to the piece about women preaching and pastoring, let's talk about the fact that this is a seemingly uh, inadmissible testimony because the women are the ones testifying about it. What is God doing in this that's seemingly subverting our presuppositions about the role and value and dignity of women. Um, I think we've misread in many ways Paul's pastoral letters and all kinds of things. And so as for me, the issue I tend to have in the spaces I'm, at, yeah, I'm in is that that particular hermeneutic is, 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 is rendered heretical. And they'll say, well, you're not taking the Bible seriously. You don't believe the Bible to be true. And I think we have to ask the hermeneutical question. How are you reading God's sufficient word? And are you reading it in ways, to use Kimini's word, continues to invisibilize women? Or sees women as, from the creative mandate on, as essentially co-equal partners in God's mission of priestly care of, of the earth? 
and that the gospel in some significant, profound way, even if it's anticipatory, redeems that original order. And that we as the followers of Jesus Christ, as people of the gospel, have to live into that eschaton in the present. Mm -hmm. That in the end, um, men and women together um, uh, will, will, you know, to borrow from King and to riff on him, hold hands and sing the words of that old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're all free at last. And I think we've got to make room for at least that dialogue, that I can affirm a complementarian position, and friends of mine who are complementarian, but don't negate again an egalitarian position and call it heretical or liberal or whatever it is. I mean, we do, let me just let's say this last thing. We do with that debate the same thing that white folk are doing with critical race theory. You get labeled a Marxist if you believe that women are co-equal partners in ministry. And I think we've got to at least embrace that there is some need for conversation around that. That's helpful. I would add to that, I'm so glad it was brought up in reference to this idea of the dichotomy, which you, which you talked about, the fact that either or, there is, well, I think we have to interrogate a couple of different things. One, we have to interrogate the fundamentalist impulse within American culture. And when I say fundamentalist, I'm not talking religious. I'm talking that in American culture, we are always saying either or, good or bad. You know, we're always going back and forth. And within Hebraic culture and within Jewish culture that there is this idea that it's okay to disagree with scripture, your interpretation. So that's why, you know, we have a variety of Jewish scholars who says, no, I believe this about this. I believe. And guess what? No one was labeled a heretic in the process because God is the unknowable, knowable, unknowable God. And in the process of being the knowable, unknowable, knowable, unknowable God, we don't have the capacity to understand the complete complexity, but scripture gives us the architecture to move into an understanding. So it means that we have to interrogate even how we come to an understanding of scripture. So our Genesis understanding is influenced by Augustine and Tertullian in terms of original sin, but, but we don't question it because we're not taught it because it then becomes a doctrine and it becomes something that is embedded that we have to challenge. And then we see the subversion, as, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Rhodes, um, in reference to scripture all the time. As Dr. Sinus, you mentioned this subverting that we see consistently. And if we don't have eyes, we will erase a revelation that is inherent in scripture that the unknowable, knowable, unknowable, knowable God is attempting to allow us to witness. So for example, um, Jesus is, all, the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Bible is not with a brother, it's a sister. So that raises particular perspectives in reference to that, or the fact that Jesus is asked by a male, uh, religious leader, come see about my 12-year-old daughter. But it is a woman with an issue of blood who stops the movement. Jesus isn't coming to see her. She's going to get her healing, didn't even ask. But the interesting thing is, is that within an Americanized view of that uh, scripture, we say she was, we use the term unclean, that has a moral implication, but in the Hebraic translation, it's restriction. 
because of the understanding of the mystery in reference to the idea of the woman's cycle and this idea of blood, you are restricted and she comes out of restriction. Not that she is unclean, which has a moral implication in English. And when she is healed, Jesus gives her designation of daughter, which means she has a higher designation than any disciple. But we are always framing it and we dismiss it because if we don't have eyes to see it, we would just see it as a simple healing in the process. So there's all this subversion over and over and over again that if we don't have the ability to interrogate and have multiple eyes on scripture, all of our eyes in your library should not be all men who wrote the commentary. That you need to have, just like we say to white folks, that you just can't have all white scholars, then you're gonna start talking about racism. They don't know. And so we need to have the diversity enough and have the ability to interrogate how we come to a particular idea. For example, and I, and I, and I end with this, that in the American context, especially in the Protestant context, there are certain Psalms we ain't never gonna read because we don't like what it says. In the Jewish context, they say you gotta read all 150 because there are certain psalms that are called the cursing psalms. That literally you cursing out God, but they say within the Jewish tradition, the only way you can have a real relationship with somebody, at some time, at some point, you gotta wanna cuss them out. And the only way that I can be a real relationship with God in the Jewish tradition, they say that God has to see the, the depths of my pain and my anger because God is not um, destroyed by our questions. And so there has to be, what I'm saying, is an interrogation of how we come to our particular understanding of scripture and know a lot of it has been framed uh, by a white supremacist modality that keeps us from interrogating things from a different perspective and seeing the broadness and beauty and the power in which God flows through, through scripture and through our lives. Can I just add real quick, um, uh, thank you, Dr. Moss. Just a little, just a little bit of intersectional reading uh, back to the woman with the issue of blood. She touched Jesus and she, something flowed out of him. See, the problem was what was flowing out of her, but something flowed out of him. Cause he said, somebody touched me. I said, what do you mean somebody touched you? All this crowd of people, somebody touched me because something changed in him when she touched him and she was healed. And what that says to me is there's something, there's a move of the spirit that women need to take at this moment that when we learn how to touch Jesus for ourselves, it's gonna bring healing to our church and our community. And the beauty of that, Dr. Sanders, is that she broke past the armor bearers of patriarchy. The disciples were blocking her from getting to Jesus, but she was willing to go past in order to get what she needed in the process and something flowed out in, in, in the midst of so. What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. 
Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at ju3project.org. I love that, um, which makes me want to ask this question because we kind of talked a little bit about it. But when it comes to sort of dismantling like patriarchy in the church, like what is the work that men need to do? And then what is the work that women need to do? So you just talked about how the woman with the issue of blood, she had to get past the armor bearers, right? So there's a, there's a work that she had to do to get to Jesus. And so what's the work that men have to do um, in order to dismantle patriarchy in the church? And then what's the work that women have to do? I w oh. um, so I would say I'm glad you asked that question because I think too, you know, I always think about like people in churches and how is what any of us is saying gonna impact people's daily lives, daily church experiences. And so one of the things I think men need to do is listen, like listen to women. Um, listen to their experiences in your congregations. Listen to their testimonies and experiences in your family, in the world, because you just don't know what you don't know. And then one of the reasons why it is so important to have women in positions of leadership and authority and laying on of hands to whatever degree is possible and available in your particular congregation is one, the church is not as healthy if it's missing the wisdom, the discernment, and the direction of women. And that doesn't mean, as I believe Dr. Rhodes was saying before, that is a feminization of the church. No more than when God created woman, it feminized the world, but it does create balance. And God has gifted women with a unique ability to be able to see certain things. Like one of the things I love about even being able to serve at the local church is even when a pastor is humbly able to say, I'm glad I talked to you because I didn't see it that way. And so there are things that need to be seen that really God wants you to have the lens and the sight and the vision of women to help you see and to help navigate the church. And so, um, and I think we, all, we have to see how this stuff practically play, plays out, which is why I said only limiting the discussion to the pulpit is um, not in service of the larger experience that women are having on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think, one of the things men need to do is see that patriarchy plays out through what is projected on women and what is withheld from women. And so some of the things that are projected on women that comes from toxic masculinity, sexism, and misogyny is one, just this notion that women cannot be trusted. And we are inherently tempters. And so women are being you know, shuffled away from people's husbands. We're not encouraged to have healthy relationships between men and women. Everything is sexualized when it comes to what it looks like to be co-laborers. Um, and then we also have to deal with the fact that we have in churches marital elitism. And so what I mean by that is, of course, marriage is a very beautiful union and God-ordained thing, but when marriage is looked at as the supreme evolution of the human experience, there then is no vision for single women. There is no place for them, and they are always waiting to arrive to a place to be chosen by man when they've already been chosen by God. And so that is another way in which patriarchy plays out. Um, another thing that it plays out in terms of 
pro projection onto women. I said earlier this notion that we aren't theologically interested um, and that we just, you know, limiting the intake of the Bible to devotionals. Um, and then I would say there's so many other things that we could talk about. Um, but then what is withheld from women, okay? So some of the things that's withheld from women is opportunity to serve and use their gifts in multiple ways other than hospitality or kitchen duty or childcare. And that is not to disparage that work in the church because that is great and holy work, but women have been called to much more, just as men have been called more than the security ministry. And Hallelujah. so the reality is we have to have an expansive view about how God wants to work through women. Another thing that is withheld from women is pay. So, so women can volunteer until the skin breaks off of their fingers but they will pay men and won't pay women. Women can go speak at a conference and men will get one honorarium and women will get another honorarium. Or women can never be considered for hire or staff position at the church. So pay is withheld, right? And so then obviously there's all kinds of things like honor and respect and a voice and a position, a seat at the table so that they can get the wisdom and ingenuity and strategy from women. But, you know, I'll stop right there, but I got a list. <laughs> Um, if you want to leave your offering on the stage. Where's the organ? Where's the organ? Yeah, if you just want to do that, uh, Cash App, Dr. Sarita Lyons, Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, however you want to do it. My God. You said something that it's one of the questions from the audience, I'm gonna kind of retool it, um, mention the Billy Graham rule. Um, and I'm not sure, let me click, let me do what I'm supposed to do. Um, it, and, and it singled out you, Dr. Rhodes, but I think it's, it's an interesting question. If you're not familiar with the Billy Graham rule, the rule is that men and women shouldn't be alone. Like if you're a married man, you shouldn't be alone with a single woman or a, another woman. And my, when you started talking about over-sexualization, you know, of women, I've kind of had this theory <laughs> that this over-sexualization of women has kind of contributed to a woman's ability to move within the church um, and even to be discipled or mentored. And you talked about the need for brother and sister relationship. And so I just... How, how has that even sort of stifled women's ability to, to serve and to lead in a church? Like what sort of effects do you think living in our over-sexualized culture um, has had on women's ability to lead? Here's what I think about the Billy Graham rule. <laughs> Tell us. If I am your pastor, you ought to be safe with me regardless of where we are. And so it's not about projecting on, well, as long as you keep that woman out of your car, that's not the problem, you the problem. And so whether you're a male pastor or a female pastor, if you are mentoring or in relationship, you, there have to be certain protocols. I'm all for protocols, but the, the most important thing is you can be safe with me. 
I'm not going to put you in a situation. If you're going to come to my office, all right, I'm not going to close the door and make you feel uncomfortable or make you feel like, oh, now I got you where I want you. But it's within the, the person who is in authority. You can't blame the person. If the woman got in the car and you're going to say, oh, a woman got in your car, well, uh, there needs to be a difference. So it, it almost gets to be a red herring, okay? It, it, it takes attention away from the problem. The problem is if you are a man in, in ministry and leadership, if you're Billy Graham, okay, then any woman around you needs to be safe, whether your wife is in the car or not. Because I think if your wife's in the car, she could get in the car, right? Is that the way that works? Okay. <laughs> But whether your wife is there or not, it's not your wife was there. And you know, that get, can I just say this? Sometimes men's indiscretion, oh, well, it, his, wife, it, his wife wasn't the one that did it. So we need to review how we uh, do formation in relationships in terms of our sexuality, professional formation. Every other profession has some kind of guidelines for sexual harassment, that kind of thing. We need some of those guidelines in the church. I mean, I also think that is, that's all true. And I mean, obviously I believe that uh, women have been over-sexualized and objectified and I totally disagree and stand against um, the, the, the smothering of purity culture and things like that on women and treating women as if they are temptress. And then at the same time, I put no confidence in the flesh. And so even as a woman, um, I have social media, but I'm just not gonna be talking to exes because I don't put confidence in my flesh. You know, shall a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned? And so I think that there is a way for us to not objectify women and assume women are temptress and the danger, but then also accept that in me no good thing dwells. I think what happens is, the methodology and the way we go about doing it is a way that often brings shame and puts the blame and onus on women, which is what even I believe Dr. Sanders is saying. And so I, I do think that we have to do things with wisdom. We have to operate with one another as care and we have to learn, see what is not taught. We talk a lot about marriage, but what, and we talk about singleness, but what we don't talk about enough in the church is the, the doctrine or the theology around siblings and what it means to be a brother and sister in Christ. How does a man and a woman operate in a healthy, biblical way that is to the glory and honor of God as siblings? And we do, we live in a sex-crazed culture, and so everything, sexuality is projected on everything. And I think one of the failures of the church, which is why like, it's so easy for women to get blamed and be scapegoated, is because unfortunately, in so many of our churches, when there is failure of men, there is no accountability. And so if a man fails and we all are capable of falling, right, let's have a, some humility in the house. We're all capable of doing the very worst. But when there is a fall, it's, it, particularly when it is against a woman or involving a woman and a man just continues to be able to serve, continues to be able to have positions of leadership, what does that communicate to women and to men about the value of women and about God's response to sin. And so I think all of those things are interconnected. 
Can I just add quickly, and I think ditto to, to both of those comments, one of the ways that patriarchy in the negative sense shows up uh, in these kinds of conversations is that we generally teach women not to be seductresses, but not teach men not to be predators. Right. And so there is a predatory culture. I'm not saying no women can be predators. I'm just saying, generally speaking, it's assumed that men can engage in loose sexual behavior, and that's a part of your development as a man. Um, and then if you're a man of God on top of that, it's due deserts. God, you know, you know, God gives you this as a reward for your faithfulness in pastoral ministry or preaching ministry, right? Um, <laughs> so I think part of what we have to do is begin to ask the question, why do we believe that, that men have a certain right to, to both sexual predatory behavior or to not control lustful desire, sexual lust? The assumption that a woman is going to automatically turn me on and therefore she is the, the culprit. Why, why am I bringing my, my flesh into subjection? You got to bring your flesh into subjection by wearing long baggy clothes. But Pastor Mark can get in there with a, a tank top on. I, I'm, I'm, just <laughs> I'm just kidding. So I think we, we've got to, and again, that's not every context, but I think there, there is a there's a culture where we allow men to be predators and think it's okay, it's forgivable, it's understandable, and that, and that we don't allow the same kind of nuances about women's sexuality, about um, the ways in which women are often victimized and subjugated, and then when things go wrong, she's the one blamed. If, I'll say this last thing, uh, we know too many times when church discipline of a pregnant woman leads to her being kicked out of the church, but not the drummer who got her pregnant. So I'll leave it at that. My, my, my. Um, well, bless God. Um, you know the reason for that? No, ma'am. Tell me why. <laughs> Because the woman is the only one that's going to have the baby. And so, and I'm, I'm, I'm seriously, um, it, it's very unfair, and, and, but it's very, it's almost universal, uh, particularly going back uh, where the, it's the woman who gets accountable because she's the only one that has the baby, right? Um, what we need to do is to bring, first of all, equity to how we do, do we do sex education in church? Do we give any, we have these standards and they're unequal and they're unfair, but what are we doing in the church to fix that, to address that? Because sex is not a comfortable topic, is it? But it's, I think we need to kind of start from scratch and say, what are some of, it's not just the modeling, but what is some of the instruction that we need to give to people at different stages, not just the young people, because some of the old people having issues too when it comes to their sexuality, because they've never been taught, or they've never been challenged, or they've never even been in the conversation. So 
I appreciate this conversation as an opportunity to stimulate our thinking about, you know what, maybe we need to do more work on that rather than just lament the fact of the injustice. Let's see what we can do to help prepare people for a better future and better structures of accountability that will include both men and women. Because if men and women are in the structures of accountability, it works a whole lot different than the old boys do. And what happens when one of our highest models of leadership is a sexual predator named David? So David was a sexual predator. And we elevate David as being the greatest king, but he was the worst father and he was a sexual predator who did not protect his daughter when she was raped by a family member who learned the sexual predator activity from viewing how the father operated and was passed down, but that's a scripture and an interpretation we can never talk about because we don't want to talk about dysfunction and predatory behavior in the church, so we'd rather be quiet about it so then people then have to continue to suffer and we continue to pass down the destructive spiritual DNA of this type of behavior. And we have to, re we have to interrogate this stuff and be real. And you know what happens when we don't interrogate it? in that we, we then put ourselves, some of us as Christians, where we don't have a problem with it in the dominant culture. So we vote for them too. You know, one, I think one of the um, diff most difficult things even about when we talk about um, gender roles and things like that with regard to the subjugation of women that deeply concerns me is how we describe and this is in the context of marriage or not, just kind of a woman's, like it's almost like inherent in women to suffer and to persevere through suffering, um, that, that, that a man has a right to be abusive, um, but just wait on God to fix it and endure the suffering. And we need to really check ourselves around our theology and how we teach and preach about restoration even of relationships, um, giving women permission to get out of abusive marriages, get out of, like marriages, not just relationships, but that that is not God's ordained picture of health and marriage. Not that you run immediately to divorce, but that after going through uh, opportunities for reconciliation, counseling, if those things are not, in, the, the husband or whatever is not interested in doing those things, I think it does a disservice to women when we, we, we tell her you can win him without a word. So we misapply scripture, keep women in abusive situations, and then perpetuate generations of children seeing their mama getting beaten and the church encouraging her to stay. And we wonder why children want to lead a church. Mm, right, right. Mm, man. Thank y'all, really. Um, there is a question from the audience. Um, and what I've really appreciated about this conversation is that we haven't talked that much about pastoring and preaching and if that is uh, permissible, uh, if you will, for women. And so this question from the audience is, how do you reconcile women pastors and preachers in light of 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 2.12. So 1 Timothy 3 uh, lays out the role for deacons and pastors, and the pronoun there is male. Uh, and then in 1 Timothy 2.12, it says that a woman should not teach or have authority over a man. And so uh, given those texts, how do you reconcile women uh, pastoring and preaching? 
Well, I'll just repeat something I said earlier. How are you going to let those two scriptures silence all of the women and negate all the women leaders that we read in the whole Bible? It's like you've taken one verse. I'm, I'm not denying that verse is there, but does that verse, who elevated that verse to dominate all of our, become our total hermeneutic for how we view women's leadership? And so you, you go all the way back to um, Genesis, Exodus, you already see women in leadership. Miriam was a prophetess. That was Moses' sister, okay? So you got a problem with that? Well, then you got to go all the way through the whole Bible. So um, the, basic, the, the basic response is that whenever we look at the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, now we got the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament too, because the Holy Spirit is in Genesis chapter 1, okay? But in, 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 in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. That's a fulfillment interpretation of the Old Testament prophecy. All flesh, the, the point was there were men and women who were speaking the same message at Pentecost, right? That's the birthplace of the church. The gifts of the Spirit are given across the board to all flesh. And that in, they had to learn, oh, that includes all racial groups, right? That includes all ethnicities. That includes both genders. And so the baptismal formula, why don't we look at that scripture? Galatians 3.28. And there's no male, no female, no Jew, no Greek. We are all one in Christ. That's how they're baptizing in the church. And so I, I say, look at the one scripture, but look at the whole counsel of God. Any other thoughts? Yes, I will. Um, so I agree that we have to look at the whole counsel of God uh, pretty much. And remember, I brought up the point that it is dependent on the hermeneutical lens through which you are viewing and interpreting scripture. So for me personally, as I read those passages that were lifted up, one, I believe that it is true. God has gifted and poured out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. I believe that is absolutely true. I believe that women can be leaders. Um, we see that in the Old Testament. But what I, where I do depart from maybe even some of my colleagues on the stage is that when it came to setting up the church, those scriptures are talking about an office, not a gift and that when people are called to eldership or pastorate, that God has called men to those roles. That is my take on those passages. But I don't think that I'm taking that scripture in isolation because the, the Bible is the best commentary for itself. And so when you look through Genesis, through Revelation, I do believe we see, which is why I started off with, maybe we should not just call this patriarchy because is patriarchy inherently evil or wrong or has it been corrupted because of sin? God himself puts himself in the position of Father God. Um, and there is hierarchy from Genesis. Um, even in the Old Testament, through the, uh, through the lineage of the patriarchs and the kings. But then also in the New Testament, when there's a hierarchy, man is the head of woman, Christ is the head of man, and God is the head of Christ. We just can't overlook those sorts of things. And so my orthopraxy, the way my orthopraxy is then informed is I believe pastors and elders are called to those lead positions. God has called men. I do believe women can preach, and I know lots of people disagree with me on that, but I think if the woman's voice is the dominant teaching voice in the role of the pastorate, that that would then be a violation of a scriptural, as he described the role. 
Um, so women being the first people to announce the, that Jesus was, was risen, that is not a role necessarily of a pastorate. I don't dismiss that. I don't dismiss how Deborah was used. I don't dismiss how Miriam was used. Lots of evidence of women uh, in scripture leading God's people, um, having a voice, having an intricate role in the gospel, in the message being disseminated in the earth. But in those two passages, along with the entire council of scripture, I see eldership and pastorate for men. I disagree. I know, it's okay. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dr. Lyons, I want to ask this question to you as a follow-up, just given you sharing like your views on the pastor and that being a role specifically for men. And so um, this question comes from the audience. It says, is it possible to only have male pastors and elders in a church without being patriarchal? And so um, I'm going to assume you're going to answer that yes. <laughs> or, but, but, but how does that look? Well, and even you saying that, you know, patriarchy within itself is probably not evil. Maybe that would be your opinion, but that it's been uh, distorted, so to speak. So how, how could that play out in a way where patriarch is not used in an abusive kind of way? I mean, you know, one of the things, I'll just start by answering it this way. All of us, because we are sinners, even through us being regenerated by the word, we haven't been separated from the presence of sin. And so anyone with power, men or women, have the proclivity to abuse it, right? And so um, I would answer the same way. Is it possible for parents to raise children and not engage in you know, the abuse of their children? Absolutely. Are there parents who abuse? Yes. But will all parents abuse their children? No. I do think we have a lot of work to do because of the stronghold around sexism around the stronghold of misogyny, that we are overcoming an obstacle that's kind of in the fabric of our culture, in our country, and in maleness, that it really takes the power of the Holy Spirit for men when they have power, for women when we have power, to do that in a way that ultimately honors and glorifies God. Why? Because Jesus Christ came as the perfect person, right? Also, the uh, hypostatic union, being fully God, fully man, but walking among us in a way that modeled what it looked like to lead and have power in a way that wasn't abusive, in a way that demonstrated love for both men and women, in a way that didn't, even to say he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself to divest of even the power so that he could do what he needed to do on the cross, which was to save us. So I do think that when there are systems of power, whether it's your boss, can bosses abuse? Can bosses be hierarchical? And can bosses cause harm? Absolutely. If you have a pastor and if they're all men, could that then feed into the old boys network? Could that stir or give permissibility for sin to reign? But then the question has to be, are we saved or not? Are we Christian or not? Are we depending on our ability to control our gender and our impulses or are we depending on the spirit of God to lead and guide us into all truth and teach us how to lead, how to love, to how to not use your position or your power or your authority in a way that helps the enemy rob God of glory? So would it be hard? Yes, but it's also hard for us to be faithful to our spouses. 
It's hard for us to forgive people who've offended us. It's hard for us to love our neighbor. It's hard for us to give up our property and money and give it to the poor. It's hard for us to not walk in autonomy and then also surrender our entire lives to a savior who gets to be Lord. It's hard for us to fire ourselves from being the ruler and operator and controller of our life. But everything is accomplished through the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Um, we have time for one more question, and this was the top-rated question from the audience. Um, and sorry for not articulating it exactly correct, but the iPad has left us. It's worked really hard today. Um, and so the question was, how significant is it, um, or what are the consequences of referring to God as she or her? Uh, is it inconsequential or is it, is it significant um, to, to refer to God as, as the male pronouns? I think that this is one of the places where particularly the um, biblical uh, research and writing and commentaries and the hermeneutical work of the uh, black women who are uh, doing scholarship will it's really helpful if we read uh, some of their work um, and to recognize that if you again you look at you, you we want to encourage each other to study the scriptures as broadly as possible how many times does the bible refer to god using feminine language how often is the the the, the holy spirit we say he but in the, if you look in the original language, the Holy Spirit is always a feminine. And so we bring certain assumptions to our reading of scripture. And I think that we would be helped, particularly uh, by people who are working with the original languages, to see that throughout the Bible, we do, we, I'm not denying that God is referred to ever as father. I'm not denying that. But there is a maternal aspect, and there are other images. There's a, a the, even referring to the breast of God, okay? And so I, that says to me that if Genesis 127, male and female are created in the image of God, that says to me that there must be some aspect of God that is imaged in the female that is not the same thing that's imaged in the male. And, and I would add to that that our, and I go back to again, our Americanism uh, in distance from, from that moment is problematic. So you have in the Jewish tradition, you have Elohim, you have Jehovah, and they do not say Yahweh. They take the consonants out and say you cannot pronounce God's name. So Elohim is a plural term taken from a feminine word because they understood very clearly God is neither male nor female, but God manifests in male and female simultaneously. So therefore, we use the term Elohim. Um, then we have the term Jehovah. Then we have the term, which they don't pronounce Yahweh, but they take away the consonants, that you can't say God's name. But then you come to people who speak English. We say God. And then we privilege he. And it becomes a problem when we privilege and don't understand the history nor interrogate the context and say that, oh, there's something wrong if you say she. Well, if God is God, a noble, noble God, is beyond us, but yet imminent with us simultaneously, then we cannot encircle God with language that limits God because God is beyond our human vocabulary. So our human vocabulary is utilized to, 
to connect with God, but still cannot contain God at the same time. So, so we have to use language that talks the expansiveness, but at the same time does not try to place God on a shelf to say that God only can. And that's the problem with certain doctrines that try to place God on a shelf so that God then can be controlled specifically by a male-centric or just a empire framework. And, 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 and I like what, uh, what you were saying, uh, Dr. Lyon, that, that the idea that there is cor the corruption in, in it just about anything that we do. Um, I, I'm, I'm a movie fan. Um, there's a movie called Star Wars. I watched all of them and all whatnot when I was little. And, and, and they have these folk called the Jedi and the Sith, Sith Lords. They have the Empire and the Jedi. And when George Lucas originally wrote Star Wars, he was writing in light of the Vietnam War. And the Empire was to be America. And the Jedis were to be the Viet Cong in his mind. But when everybody saw it, they saw the Jedis as being themselves. And the reality is when you're in an American context of, of, of racism and sexism and classism, um, we want to be Jedis, but we are really part of the empire. And we are always have to interrogate how the empireness has a residue on everything that we do. And even in the language that we use, when we privilege the language, because we've been using it so long, but we haven't interrogated why do we use that language in such a way and that we do a deep departure from the Hebraic roots for an American use or a Protestant or Eurocentric use of language. God is Elohim and Jehovah. Uh, God is Yahweh. Uh, God is Jehovah Nisi. Uh, God, God is all of because in, in the Jewish tradition, they say, you know what, even if I had a million words, I could not exhaust and speak to the complexity, power uh, of God. So therefore, God is still beyond my vocabulary, but I got to use some words to just talk about who God is. Could I add very quickly, I, I, I agree philosophically with the limitations of human language uh, when it comes to religious speech. I would say, though, I take very seriously the revelation of God as Father in relation to Jesus. I don't see that simply as a marker of some first century uh, convention. Uh, what does it mean for us to be in Christ and Christ has called God Father? He's taught us how to pray, our Father which art in heaven. Um, from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's this constant refrain in the uh, Pauline text, um, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would say, yes, there's an expansiveness. God is not gendered in the way that we often think about that. Uh, but the, the revelation of God as Father in the New Testament is something to be taken seriously. The other thing I would say very quickly is that we have to be clear not to project our trauma, whether it's a woman's engagement with trauma with, with a man or even men who have absent fathers, who find the father language difficult, that we've got to think about the ways in which father then as a category transcends our limited understandings of father. Uh, and so we can't map onto God as father our limited understandings and experiences of what it means to be father, absent, abusive, or not. Thank you. I'm really glad you said that. I was definitely going right there with you. Um, I do think that um, 
we want to be careful that in a re reactive response to suffering, that we just don't use the language um, that God is using. And I understand what you're discussing about the original language and things like that, but I think throughout scripture we see very clearly God presenting himself in a gendered way and perhaps for a reason. And the fact that we're even having all of this discussion about patriarchy in the church and we're calling out all forms of oppression against women, I mean, how beautiful is it that our heavenly father, you know, we sing that song, he's a good, good father, um, is available to us in a world where so many women and men have not had good, good fathers, have not had good husbands, right? And he says that we are the bride of Christ. He genders us, the church and the female, to be the bride of Christ because there's so much suffering in marriage. Um, and I would say we can trust God um, to correct oppression, whether here or in glory, to end it officially without renaming God, um, without changing the scripture so that we can embrace God in a way that we're not triggered. And, and you know, one of the things as a clinician, you know, which is why I am, I, I want to speak truthfully and flat-footed, but I'm also delicate because I know we're dealing with hearts and minds and souls, is that even when we begin to broach these subjects about gender roles or what women can do or can't do, um, I don't ever think that's where we start, especially when we don't know people's hurts and we don't know what people have experienced. Um, in the same way, when you see someone who just lost their spouse or just lost their mom and they died and we say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You know, when people are talking about all the different ways, women particularly, that they've been hurt and marginalized, both in the world and in the church, you know, we don't start with um, submission. You know, we don't start with, well, that's your pastor. He's the head, respect authority, respect leadership. Meaning that's not how we tend to minister to the soul. That's not how we give voice and validation to human suffering, nor is it a way to really invite Jesus into the scenario so people can see him high and lifted up and greater above all systems and empires. And yes, I do believe um, Dr. Moss, as you've declared, that we all have the residue of being in an Americanized uh, system that is dominated predominantly by white men. But I do think as believers of the household of faith, at some point we have to grab hold of what it means to be a kingdom citizen and that we don't belong to this world and that we do things differently. We're supposed to be thinking differently. And yes, while we have the vestiges of the, the American system and our minds are in bondage and all that stuff, that's true. At what point do we believe that we can be literally transformed by the word of God? When does the word of God have that kind of power and our kingdom be greater than the kingdom of this world? So I'm just not willing, and I'm not suggesting this is what you're saying, I'm just not willing to lie down with all the privilege and power that I receive from God and think that I'm limited based on what is temporal and that there is a greater thing at work in me that allows me to rise above and live beyond even my own faults and sins and especially those of others. Yes. Amen, amen. Would you just thank these panelists um, for their time and investment in us today? Thank you so much, thank you so much. 
What's up everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project. And I'm so excited to come to you to talk about Courageous Conversations 2022. That's right, we're at it again for another year. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, DC at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well, but don't miss this year. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.